Well, that hymn is very fitting for the portion of Scripture we're going to look at today, because what we see here is the end result of the sovereign power of God. That's something that the Bible teaches, but we really can't understand because we're finite human beings. We can't understand all the time how God can even use bad things, evil things, to promote his will. But in the story of Joseph, we observe this mysterious relationship between the sovereign will of God and the human will of mankind. Joseph's brothers hated him because he was the favored son. Humanly speaking, putting ourselves in that situation, we can probably understand how they may have felt. However, hatred is rooted in selfishness and sin, and it's what lay behind their ill treatment of their brother and his eventual sale into bondage. And we may think, well, how could God let that happen? Joseph wasn't a bad person. Joseph uh, interpreted some dreams that God gave him. How could he let Joseph's brothers do that to him? It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. It caused Joseph much anguish and pain through his young life. But it was part of a much bigger picture, a greater plan that would take years to work out. In his sovereignty, though, God allowed Joseph to go down through this evil means to Egypt. But while he was there, he blessed Joseph. He was with Joseph. He caused him uh, over those few years to rise to the greatest power, the greatest position uh, of the world at that time. And he brought about a devastating famine to then carry out his purpose for his chosen people. But before that famine occurred, he warned Pharaoh in a dream which Joseph was able to interpret And a plan was then devised which would preserve life and save Israel. Now, in all of that, the will of man cooperates or fails to cooperate. But in the end, God's will is what is done. And God used the wicked actions of Joseph's brothers to get him where he needed to be to carry out God's greater plan. Joseph however, cooperated with God by not being bitter and resentful about his circumstances. He did his best to live right in whatever position or place God put him. And a day finally came where his family was forced to come down to Egypt in order to survive this famine. And God then uses Joseph to start the process of reconciliation Necessary to solidify the family, preserve them from devastation and death, and provide the foundation for the future growth of his nation, Israel. Now we come to chapter 5, and this is really the climax of this whole narrative. It's what it's been building up to. Joseph has tested the character of his brothers, their honesty, their jealousy, their loyalty. They've admitted their sin. They've demonstrated a change of behavior. Judah is now even willing to sacrifice himself for his brother, take his place in slavery. And at this junction, Joseph can't hold it together anymore. And he passionately reveals himself to his brothers. And this is the final step in Israel's reconciliation as a family and preservation 
as an infant nation in Egypt. And what we have described for us is both the means and the method that achieved this reconciliation and the fulfillment of God's purpose. That's what we're going to look into today. Our Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing again on your word. As we see how you led uh, this family to reconciliation and uh, uh, used the means of forgiveness to do so, help us realize that uh, it all fell into the big picture of your plan. And Lord, that sometimes uh, in our little world, uh, similar things happen to us and they can have a good or uh, bad impact upon our life depending upon our attitude. And we pray, Lord, you help us to be able to see the bigger picture that you have for us, the bigger plan as we go about uh, our daily business and perhaps have situations where we need to extend forgiveness to others or to receive it from others. So bless us, Lord, as we look into your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we look to the portion of scripture we read this morning, I want us to see, first of all, the reconciliation of the family through forgiveness is God's means of preserving Israel. And really, it's God's means of preserving anyone from uh, death and sin and hell because we need to be reconciled to God. Now, let's first of all take a look at the motive of reconciliation, which is compassion. And we see this in the first three verses. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Now, uh, this is continue, continue, uh, excuse me, continuing the story. Judah has come, and Judah has been willing to take the place of Benjamin and be a slave instead of Benjamin. And hearing that impassioned plea of Judah causes Joseph really to have a breakdown. Now, we've learned two previous occasions that he had to remove himself from the family to weep over the situation. But now he just kind of totally loses it. And everybody's got to leave his presence because the Egyptians would have been extremely upset and even offended if they saw one of their leaders lose his composure in this manner. So once they leave, he then cries out loudly, he begins to weep, and it's so loud that they can actually hear him, and it doesn't take long uh, for the whole palace to figure out something of great uh, uh, interest is happening in the uh, family of Joseph. Now, as Joseph weeps aloud in verse 2, the whole household hears about it, and then the first thing Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph, does my father still live? All the while he's been asking questions about the family, about his father. Is he still alive? Is he okay? And remember, uh, over 20 years have passed since he's been with them, and this is a deep concern that his father is okay. And as he displays this emotion, Joseph is actually giving expression to the truth that he is identifying with his people, with Israel, with his family, with his fathers, with his brothers, not with Egypt and Pharaoh. 
Although he has been Egyptianized to fulfill God's purposes, he has not worshipped their gods or forgotten about the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has even been used of God to test the character of the future leaders of the nation and reconcile this whole family together. So his heart's desire has been not to get revenge over the bad situation that got him there, but to reconcile the family over the sins of the past so they can move forward now in God's bigger plan, the big picture here. He shows his care for his family, his desire for them to be reunited, and if there isn't this kind of a care on the part of a person, there really can't be any forgiveness over the situation. And this is similar to the compassionate spirit of the Lord Jesus. You'll remember the story that while he was being nailed to the cross by Roman soldiers, you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He had compassion even while people were causing him severe pain. And Joseph now has the same kind of spirit. Now, uh, that's the, the foundation here of what happens next. And we see, secondly, the means of reconciliation, bringing people together, is forgiveness. And, of course, we know the whole story is the fracturing of the family, creating a need for there to be forgiveness so they can come back together. Now, his brothers, upon hearing this, are extremely dismayed in verse 3. That means they were deeply troubled. Uh, the word here actually means to be terrified, uh, a, a paralyzing kind of fear. And again, we think about the situation where they're in. They don't know what's going to happen to them next. Uh, Joseph has said uh, that he's going to keep uh, the youngest brother in slavery. If he does that, they think Jacob's going to die because he'll be missing another son. And they're willing to take his place, but they don't know what the outcome is yet. Now they find out that the man in Egypt that everybody feared is Joseph, their brother. Is he going to take vengeance on them now? He's got the power not to just enslave them, but to actually kill them, to slay them. So when they hear this, they're, uh, they're not at all relieved. As a matter of fact, they are even more afraid than they were in the first place because they think that this is going to be payback time. Now Joseph shows his forgiveness by calming their fears. He says to his brothers in verse 4, Please... Come near to me, so they came near. And it's hard to forgive people from a distance. But part of the issue here is they've not, they haven't recognized Joseph this whole time. He's, he doesn't look like a Hebrew. He looks like an Egyptian. He's got the headdress and he's bald. Uh, he's uh, different because he's 20 years older. They've missed the whole thing. So he probably asked them to come closer so they can recognize him. They can see him real close, face to face. And then by what he says, convince them that he really is Joseph, the brother that they thought by now was probably dead. So he begins to explain them to them the big picture of God's sovereignty, God's providence, God's control of that whole situation that got him here. He says again, 
I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Uh Uh-oh, there it is. It comes out. But nobody else would have known that outside these uh, ten brothers. What happened? So how would this man know it if he's not really Joseph? Joseph, again, is identifying himself and using that phrase, you're the ones that sold me into Egypt. So this is helping them to understand it really is Joseph. But notice what he says here. He's not, <clears throat> excuse me, he's not holding a grudge because he understands the big picture. He understands the providence of God in this whole situation. And he tells them, but now... Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. That was the big picture. They couldn't see it, but Joseph could. Uh, 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 They've been full of guilt. They've felt some remorse here. We've seen that kind of through the story up to this point, but now they have to see that there is much more to it than even the sin they committed in putting Joseph where he's at. One commentator made this statement. Here is the inscrutable balance between the sovereign will and the human will. They had sold him in hatred But God sent him to Egypt to save them. And the righteous can discern that God works even through the evil plans of men. Now, three times in that paragraph, Joseph repeats that it was God that sent him to Egypt. And that verb to send is often used in scripture to designate a mission. God had a mission for Joseph to accomplish, and the only way he could do it was getting him down to Egypt. And it so happens he even used the sin of his brother uh, brothers to get him there. Uh, so uh, uh, he's on a mission. He's fulfilling that mission. He's cooperating with it. And Joseph now conveys to them that in verse 6, there's only uh, been two years of this seven-year famine. There's five more years of the famine. And if God had not sent him to Egypt, it's extremely likely that the family back in the promised land would have perished. God used this whole situation not just to save the Egyptians and many other countries, but his people from expiring. And that would just wreck the whole plan of God. So he has devised this uh, in his sovereign will over all this period of time. Now, of course, Jacob reminds them that God has made him a ruler in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. <clears throat> but note he calls himself a father to Pharaoh. What does that mean? Well, that, that uh, suggests a a close counselor, a chief friend, someone who is helpful to Pharaoh. And we've seen this because he interpreted those dreams and sent in motion that which would 
save up the grain so the next uh, seven years could be gotten through without uh, everybody dying from starvation. So again, God's controlling the affairs of the situation. He's made uh, Joseph come to this place where he is actually saving the world by his actions and by his administration. And because Joseph could see that, that the hand of God is in working in these circumstances of our personal lives, he's now able to forgive his brothers. He knows they did it for bad. He's not trying to let them off the hook, but he has to make them understand there's even a bigger picture than this. Now, we may not always be able to see the big picture the way Joseph did in our lives. Nevertheless, We know that God brings difficulties into our lives for a higher purpose. He tests our faith by these things. He grows our patient endurance through them. And if we're caught up in our our hurts and we focus just on ourselves, we're going to become broken and bitter and resentful and vengeful and God can't work through even those adverse bad circumstances. So accepting the big plan of God, even in these hard things, enhances our ability to forgive those who offend us and let God move forward. Now, as the story continues in verse 9, Joseph invites the family now to pack up their bags and come down to Egypt and live with him and he'll provide for them. And what this shows us is his genuine character of forgiveness. He's not just doing it uh, to make things patched up and seem to be okay. He actually wants the family to come down there and and live with him. So he says in verse 9, hurry up, Go to my father, say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. Okay, so they're to convey this good news to Jacob, convince him to migrate to Egypt, and Joseph then will, will take care of them. Goshen is, was a very fertile land. It was in the, uh, uh, the Delta region, uh, up in the northeast uh, uh, side, and it would provide everything they would need, very fertile, and that's the way God will preserve them over these next five years and actually begin to build them into his people. Verse 12, he says, Behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, who would probably in their father's eyes be the most reliable of the witnesses, see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. And that could be an indication he was also speaking to them in the Hebrew tongue, not Egyptian through an interpreter because everybody else went out. So that's another indication this really is Joseph. And you're to go back, you're to testify these things I've told you and convince him to come down. Verse 13, so you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Now, previously, we 
looked at the story of Jacob reconciling with Esau. Everything turned out okay in that situation, but not the same as this one. They still went their separate ways. The families never really came together. And often when relationships are patched up, things aren't the same afterwards. We keep our distance. We avoid fellowship. But Joseph seeks full reconciliation. He wants the family to come together in harmony and peace, and he wants to fully provide all of their needs. So the means of reconciliation with God is through forgiveness, forgiving past sins, uh, coming together and moving forward in God's plan. And in his sovereignty, we think of that future son who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. He used wicked men to put him on the cross so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And God forgives us fully and lavishly blesses us when we come to him for salvation. So this is kind of uh, related to what's going to happen in the future when God saves the whole world spiritually through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the last couple of verses, 14 and 15, relate to us the result of reconciliation is restoration. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after this, his brothers talked with him. So they are getting back together, reestablishing their relationships. Of course, Benjamin could have been no more than probably six or seven when uh, Joseph went down into Egypt. Now it's 22 years later, and there's a sweet reunion. He also kisses his brothers. This was a uh, uh, a traditional kiss on the cheek, as in that part of the world even today. He weeps uh, over them. And, the, and finally, the key here is that these brothers who hated him so thoroughly could not even speak peaceably to him back in chapter 37, are now talking to their brother. So there is reconciliation and restoration, and now they're prepared to migrate down into Egypt where they'll be saved through this horrible famine. So beginning of verse 16, we still have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, And we see here God's method of preserving Israel is this migration down to Egypt. And again, we're following the the big picture, the big story of God as it develops through the whole book of Genesis. Now, although the sons of Jacob have been reconciled, Joseph has bid them to come down to Egypt. There's still some question as to how the Lord's sovereign will is going to work out here. Will Pharaoh agree to foreigners moving into his nation, especially when he felt superior to them? How will Jacob respond to the news when the brothers come back and tell him, and what's their attitude, what's his attitude going to be toward them when he finds out what they did? Will he actually come down? So the next section explains God's method of moving Israel. And the first thing it connects to is Pharaoh's hospitable invitation in 16 through 24. 
Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh. That connects us back to, uh, to verse 2. And he says, jo- uh, and, and he hears that Joseph's brothers have come. Now he's unaware of this relationship as well. But when he finds out, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. So it favored him. Now remember, uh, Joseph stands in the favor of Pharaoh. Pharaoh loves him because of what he's done to save his nation from this uh, terrible uh, famine. Now, uh, Pharaoh would not have been privy to the invitation that Joseph gave because nobody was in there and nobody had conveyed the news. So Pharaoh is kind of acting independently from what Joseph has already done but again, we kind of see the Lord working in his heart, in his mind, because he agrees with what Joseph has already proposed, even though he's not aware of it yet. Verse 17, Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals, depart, go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. So he's willing to give the best portions of the land to this foreign people, totally unusual. The fat of the land, uh, that relates to the the produce, everything that land will produce, um, and not just the land itself. And now you are commanded, verse 19, do this, take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones, your wives, bring your father, and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So a very uh, unusual and generous invitation. And I'm sure that in the mind of Pharaoh, this was viewed as a service he could provide uh, to Joseph, who was the one God used to save his people from this famine because they would have been devastated as a nation as well. And it kind of reminds us of Romans 12.1, that our reasonable service toward Christ who saved us is offering ourselves and all we have to him. As Paul wrote, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It shows Pharaoh's thanksgiving and his appreciation and honor for Joseph. And when we do that to God, it shows the same thing uh, toward him because of all he's done for us. The next few verses show us Joseph's lavish gifts to his uh, reconciled brothers. And again, has some lessons to teach us. Now, verse 16 says, um, the report excuse me, verse 21. Then the sons of Israel did so. Joseph uh, gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, And uh, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, food for his father for their journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Okay, two thoughts here. First of all, 
this change of clothing, these new garments. Remember, when Joseph was sold into slavery, they stripped him of his garment, that special tunic that only uh, Joseph wore. When they heard that Benjamin had taken the cup, or they thought that he did, what did they do with their own clothing? In their angst, they tore their clothing. Again, an emotional reaction of people of that uh, time and part of the world when they're extremely upset. So uh, we have to assume that they're still in their rag clothing that they just ripped up. And now Joseph gives them new garments in display of their renewed relationships. And in a sense, it's kind of like putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Like you put off an old garment, you put on a new garment. So this change of garments symbolizes their change of character and their reconciled condition. And we have allusions to that in the New Testament in our relationship to God. Then we have in the last phrase here, this admonition. See that you do not become troubled along the way. Well, what does he mean by that? The word troubled can mean fear, um, and it may allude, don't be afraid going back home because the robbers and stuff with all the things that you have. But most uh, commentators feel that this is uh, more being troubled among yourselves, not quarreling. The idea can come out with that as well about your past experiences. In other words, no more, I told you so. You know, why did you do that? Or why did we do this? He doesn't want them to focus on the past. He wants them to focus on the future. And, and when they do that, they're forgetting, uh, the sins of the past and they're looking forward to God's guidance in the future the things that have been done wrong to them or that they have done rather have done wrong to Joseph so that they can uh, they can uh, live together in peace and tranquility. And sometimes that happens to us as well. Being human beings, we can't always completely forget about the past. It's going to pop up from time to time. There may be things that we did that were wrong to other people and it pops up in our minds. There may be things that people did to us that were absolutely wrong and it pops up in our mind and it can control us. But we need to ask the Lord to help us let those things go, not to bring them up constantly and chide ourselves about them, but be like the Lord who forgives and forgets and and we can move forward with the Lord. There's nothing we can do to change it, but there's something we can do Uh, to make things better in the future. Now, the men come home and have to face their father with all this situation. Have you ever done something wrong and then you had to go tell your parents about it? Or maybe something they discovered and they call you and you got to go through the whole thing you did wrong and pay the, the, uh, the piper. Well, that's kind of what happens here. But the author blanks that whole situation. Imagine coming home, they're telling good news. Look what they say in verse 26. Joseph's still alive, he's governor over all the land of Egypt. And maybe on the way home they say, you know what, remember the dreams he had? They all came true anyway. We tried to, we tried to keep them from coming true, but they all came true anyways. He really is the one who rules over us. So I go back with this good news that Joseph's still alive, 
But I would have to imagine Jacob's thinking, well, how did he get down to Egypt if he's alive? They must have had to tell what they did. But he blanks that and they focus on these two facts. Jacob's alive and he's the ruler of Egypt. He's the man we've all been fearing as we went down there. And no wonder then Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. His heart literally was numb. He didn't know how to respond to this. He didn't know what to do. And again, remember, Joseph's been out of the picture for 22 years. This is like a resurrection story. Jacob thought he was dead. And now all of a sudden, his sons are telling him, 22 years later, he's not dead, he's alive, and he's actually the second ruler of Egypt. So I can understand why he would just kind of be there like like dumbfounded uh, at, at hearing this news and really not believing it. Kind of reminds us of some disciples when they heard the news of the Lord Jesus being raised from the dead. They didn't believe it either until they started looking at the evidence. And again, just as strange and marvelous, Joseph is the man who they have been dealing with all these years in Egypt. All right. Now, as they begin talking to him and telling them the things, him the things that Joseph said, verse 27, uh, they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. So well, what we have here is uh, the revival of Jacob's faith. I really think that Jacob's faith had been failing over this past period of time. There are no stories about Jacob at all. No more stories of of, uh, trusting God. No more stories of, of what God's been doing. It's just that negative pessimism. All these things are against me. That was the focus of his life when they went down there uh, and came back the first time. The pain of a separation from Joseph never left him, and the victory in the Lord was not with him. But Jacob finally hears the news. As they talk to him, his spirit's revived, and he's ready then to go down to see his son in Egypt, verse 28. I'll go and see him before I die. So through all of this, Jacob is getting his faith back to where it needs to be after it really had been crushed all these years. Now, before he goes down, really kind of on the journey, we see the Lord's assurance of all this going on in the next chapter. We're told Israel, again, Israel... Uh, the name of Jacob, uh, who prevails with God. Israel took his journey with all that he had. He came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, uh, Isaac. The first time we see this over the last period of 20 years. He comes to Beersheba, the, the southernmost settlement of the promised land. He stops off there 
We know this is a place where both Jacob and Abraham, uh, um, excuse me, Abraham and Isaac had offered up sacrifices to the Lord. It also reminds us that there was a time when Abraham journeyed down to Egypt. He didn't ask God about it, and we all know how that turned out, not very well. We're also reminded that there were a time when when uh, Isaac thought he should go down to Egypt, but he stopped at Beersheba and the Lord said, don't go down, and he obeyed. So perhaps these things are in the mind of Jacob and he wants to make absolutely sure that this is God's will. So he stops there, he worships again, sacrifices to the Lord, and as he does so, the Lord comes to him in a vision in verse 2. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. I'm ready to listen to you, Lord. I want to know what your will is. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Now that echoes Bethel when he went north to find a wife. God met him at Bethel and pretty much the same kind of a promise going there. God already proved that he would be with him. And now he repeats the promise as he's going down south to Egypt. He says, do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Jacob is an old man. He's well over 100 years old at this point in his life. And now he's got the assurance of God that if he goes down, God will be with him like he was when he went up to Haran to find his wives. And uh, he's not to be afraid of this. And this migration is in full, full, fulfillment of God's revelation to Abraham. Remember when uh, the, the covenant was ratified with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, The Lord said to him, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. That land is now Egypt. And will serve them. They will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So this is being fulfilled in its initial stages as they go down into Egypt. And he also tells him that Joseph is the one who's going to put his hands on your eyes and close them in death. So he has this reassurance of going down there to Egypt. And trusting that assurance, in verse 5, Then Jacob arose from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, their wives, and the carts with Pharaoh had uh, sent to carry them. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. They went to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons, his sons' sons, his daughters, his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And then we have a long list from 8 down to 25 of the families, according to their mothers. Starts off with Leah then her handmaid, then Rachel and her handmaid, lists all the sons and the grandsons that have been born to that time. And according to verse 26, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. The sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons, 
and all the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. So if you had Jacob and Joseph, the total number is 70. That's not a whole lot, is it? But from that 70, from that remnant that God saved through this famine, developed the whole nation of Israel, and by the time they went out, centuries later, they numbered in the millions. So God was sovereignly moving in this direction the whole time, not only to save Egypt and other Gentile lands, but to reconcile his uh, people, to preserve them through his sovereign power and his wise servant. And from this little group and innumerable people, whom all nations of the earth would be blessed by, begins to grow and develop. And that blessing came to its full fruition in the arrival of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, through whom the world is reconciled to God the Father, preserved from sin, death, and hell for all of eternity in the heavenly promised land. So, let's uh, just review some things here by way of application. First of all, somehow, God in his sovereignty sometimes uses the sinful deeds of men to fulfill his purposes. We see it in the story of Joseph. We see it in the life of the Lord Jesus. And uh, through wicked men putting him on the cross, God brought the greatest good to the whole world through that act. But then it comes down to ourselves. When evil is done to us, Do we try to see the big picture? It's hard to do. Does what happens to us turn us to God or does it turn us away from him? Does it help us forgive or do we focus so much on our own hurt and the seeming injustice of it all that that we just can't get through it? And we can never discount the big picture of God's sovereign rule even in our own personal affairs our own lives. But there is a thoughtful word of warning that I read from a commentator. He wrote this, the discovery that through our evil purposes and injurious deeds, God has worked out his beneficent will is certainly not calculated to make us think more lightly of our sin or more highly of ourselves. It somehow fits in God's plan, but it doesn't excuse us for doing the wrong thing. We see here also the test of forgiveness is the fullness of restoration. How far do you go in that restoration part of the forgiveness? Joseph's hospitality, his lavish gifts to his brothers, and his desire to have them live with him and provide for them in Egypt display that his forgiveness was full and free. And really that's a microcosm of God's forgiveness of our sins, incorporating us into his family. And it's also an example to us of how we should forgive others. Finally, God's promise in chapter 46 to Jacob is his promise to his saints as well. 
As we submit to his will, he promises he's going to be with us. He's going to take care of us. He's going to guide us. And he's going to make us into the person he wants us to be until he calls us home to glory. But we've got to submit to that will. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the story of this reconciliation between Joseph and his family. We're thankful, Lord, that although a lot of bad things were done, in your sovereign will, you brought out the greatest good. Lord, help us to realize that uh, the same thing can occur in our lives. There can be a lot of really bad things that happen to us. But if we look to you and your greater plan, those things can be healed, they can be overcome, and uh, we can end up having a really good and blessed life. We're thankful, Lord, that uh, the Lord Jesus, in your sovereign will, had to suffer many horrible things in order that we might be forgiven of our sins. But Lord, out of those horrible things, you brought the greatest good. You saved the whole world uh, through the blood of Christ, those who come to you in faith and submission. We're thankful that you forgive us our sins as well through Christ. So, Lord, bless us with these thoughts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.